Good morning, church. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. It's good to see you all gathered here inside our warm church with some warm coffee on this unexpectedly wintry day. Not ready for this, but it's okay. 42 days till Christmas. I may or may not do that every Sunday until... No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to go ahead now and dismiss our kids for Revolution Kids. We got Miss Trish and Miss Brenda are here ready for you. Miss Brenda told me she's got some fun games planned, so I'm excited for you all. Hope you guys have a great time. All right, well, this morning we are continuing in our teaching series um, on Methodism, sort of Methodism for smarties, because we are all about being uplifting and encouraging here. It's not about Methodism for dummies. But taking a look, right before this time, we had a couple weeks in between our stewardship campaign and when Advent begins, a good opportunity for us to talk about what it means to be United Methodist. What do we believe uh, and what's currently going on in our church right now? Um, So last week, I sort of set it up by saying, you know, of course, we hold to these sort of Catholic universal understandings. In our articles of religion, you can see we affirm the beliefs of the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed right, the divinity of Christ, uh, his death and resurrection, uh, his, his hopeful return, right, our, our future hope uh, of his return and, and coming glory. And there's a lot then that makes us very similar in sort of these core beliefs, the foundation of which is simply proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord, that confession of faith that we hold with our Catholic and Protestant and non-denominational brothers and sisters in Christ, There's a lot more that connects us than divides us. But in the spirit of sort of answering this question of what makes us uniquely United Methodist, I shared last week that there are really two things that maybe sort of set us apart just a little bit. These are our convictions and our understanding. And yet, we have this humility that we know that we may be wrong about some of this. Uh, Honestly, none of us on this side of heaven are going to be completely right about anything when it comes to theology and and our understanding of God and and even doctrine and polity. But these two things that sort of separate us, make us uniquely United Methodist, are these two things, our understanding of grace, our Wesleyan understanding of grace, and our connectionalism, our connectionalism. Last week, we talked about those three types of grace. All right. This would be a really good Sunday for this to work. (laughs) We got so many slides. I'm going to try again. No, I'm, I'm, uh, yes. It's, I'm just trying to get it to connect here remotely. There, that's what I want. I do. I know. I need, I need a shirt that says I hate technology. I love technology, but at my age, like, I just don't, I don't even. That's why I'm saying I should understand this better than I do. (laughs) I do not represent my generation well. That is a dog on myself, not anybody here. Okay. (laughs) Last week, our Wesleyan understanding of grace, provenient, justifying, sanctifying, this understanding that uh, our, our salvation is something Uh, that is a lifelong process of movement of grace and growth into holiness, 
over time, right, with God as the first mover, this gift of grace that we don't deserve, that we don't earn, that there's nothing we can do. And yet, as we accept it, we can, we can grow into that sanctifying grace, that grace that makes us holy, that grace that develops within us the fruits of the Spirit to where we're growing more and more like Christ with the goal, that check mark, if you remember it from last week, the goal of glorification, of being glorified with Christ in the coming resurrection, right? This is a lifelong process and really sort of our understanding of salvation as Wesleyan Methodists. Um, so this week, and we're going to switch, that was our understanding of grace. That second thing that really sets us apart, that makes us uniquely united Methodist, is our understanding of connectionalism and our polity, kind of talking about our doctrine this morning. I hope some of you have it. Uh, this is a good time. If you didn't pick up a bingo card on your way in, <laughs> there are a lot of terms that we are going to be saying this morning that we absolutely made up. Connectionalism, for example, not in the dictionary, <laughs> but it is if you're a United Methodist. So I'm serious. We have bingo sheets. I burned up the printer, so they may look a little funny, but they're legible. <laughs> and on the back is a glossary that helps define all of these words that we're going to be talking about. And if you get bingo, say bingo in the middle of the teaching, because I have a bowl right here of Smarties. A bowl of Smarties that I will throw at you, not the whole bowl, one, <laughs> one smarty. We're going to see if my uh, softball skills from high school are still going to be all the way in the back. Tyler, you got a card? Need a card. Needs a bingo card in the back. Okay. And use a pen. I don't have any markers or anything for you to cover, but there are different versions. I did figure that out so you don't all get bingo at the same time. Took me a second. You can. Some, you have a, a pin in the back of the seat back in front of you to fill out your Connect card. Thank you, Eric. There are revolution pins in front of you. All right. So last Sunday, I attended a district-level meeting that we had in, in our church at Fern Creek United Methodist Church over in Fern Creek. And as I walked in, there was a man who was opening the door, greeting people as they gathered. This was a meeting for, for clergy and lay people. And this just happened, so happens to be the church where my parents grew up, Fern Creek United Methodist, where my grandparents are still members. So this man who opens the door, greets us, welcomes them in, I'm thinking, I bet he goes here. <laughs> And so I just asked him, you know, hi, my name's Rachel, are you, do you go here? He said, yes, I, I've been here for 25 years. And I said, oh, well, I'm, I'm Rachel Peters Wallace. My, my grandparents are Nat and Joyce Peters. And he just lit up, right? He just, he lit up because he said, Nat taught my very first Sunday school class the first Sunday that I came here. They are a big reason why I stayed at this church. And we started talking. He was asking me how my grandparents are doing because they don't get out and come to church as often as they used to. Uh, asking me how, how are your grandparents doing. Asking how they can be praying for him, things like that. And about that time, Rose Farquhar walks up and gives me a big hug. That happens to be Ben Farquhar's mother. They're actually at uh, KCIW this weekend on the Residence Encounter Christ. That's where the Farquhars are. Uh, so they're not leading, and they're there with Rose uh, doing prison ministry this weekend. But Rose comes up, gives me a great big hug, because she goes to Fern Creek United Methodist Church, and she says, you know you're getting old 
when kids you had as counselors at Camp Lucon are now pastors and leading in our church. And she gives me a big hug. She's known me since I was 15 years old at Camp Lucon. It was those connections that we were making, that sort of uh, joy and what Wesley called sort of holy conferencing when we come together from all of our different sort of local churches and camp and retreat ministries, even Emmaus and Chrysalis. Maybe you've had an experience like this before where you know someone because you knew someone because you all were at the same Emmaus walk together. And when we gather together, you have that joy of making these connections. That's really what we mean when I say the word that we made up, connectionalism. It's the way in which United Methodist members and congregations and conferences relate to one another. We are connected. We are part of one church, one polity, one system together. There's a pastor, a Methodist pastor, Thomas Frank, who describes moments like this, me walking in the doors of Fern Creek, as experiencing a larger fellowship through our presence together. We're experiencing a larger fellowship. Kind of reminds me a little bit about our understanding of the great cloud of witnesses, the communion with the saints, both past and living. When I went to that Emmaus gathering I told you about a few weeks ago and, and saw uh, Louise Hawkins, another member of Fern Creek United Methodist Church, we were participating in a larger fellowship there with the communion of saints. This is kind of similar. That's really what we mean by connectionalism. Okay, what, is, what do we mean by polity then? All right, Meg, you ready? We're gonna, I'm going to let you, let you, this is, it's a, it should be pretty straightforward. Uh, yeah. So by polity, we mean simply our means of governance, our pattern of order as a church, our structures of authority and participation and decision-making that are really essential to the life of a church. It's simply this, just a way a group of people organizes themselves to fulfill a mission. A way a group of people organize themselves here to fulfill our mission as a local church. Okay, so polity, it does come from the same root word as political. It's not political in nature, but it comes from this Greek word referring to the government or a constitution, the practices of a citizen in the polis or the city or state. So thinking back to, to, to Greece and this understanding of at the heart of what made someone sort of like a, a participant, their political responsibility, a, a participant in the, the citizenship of their polis, right? It had to do with another Greek word, ekklesia, the gathering of the people together. Bingo, already? Man. There are different versions. Okay, you ready? I won't hit you in the face, maybe. You ready? <laughs> okay. Look at that. Oh, all right. Wow, we're just going to be just going right through these terms. You all paying attention? <laughs> so it had to do with this ecclesia. But remember, in Greece, here, go back just one. Yeah. In Greece, the only people who could participate in this gathering and to participate in the, the goings-ons of society were, of course, they had to be male, they had to be free, and they had to be property-owning owning citizens of the city. Okay, so those were only the people, really, that made up this ecclesia in its original sense, making decisions, then, that would affect the whole community. But what we see is as early Christians sort of convert and the early church grows and they begin gathering for worship and fellowship, they assumed this term, ecclesia, 
for themselves, for their own meetings. Drawing on this sort of understanding of the public assembly, they understood themselves to be gathering together for a purpose. And therefore, it's important of how they organize themselves to meet their purpose and their mission. But of course, this gathering was different. The, the, the ecclesia, the gathering of Christians, the followers of Jesus Christ, now included women as well as men. They included slave as well as free. And they, all right, where are you? Melanie. Okay, ooh, okay, you ready? You ready? I'm, I trust myself, but it also is a good opportunity to hit Vance in the head. I don't know. Okay, will you pass it on, Vance? Here you go. Oh, look at that snag. Melanie. All right. If you get bingo again, I guess there's a whole bowl. We can just see how this goes. You remember in Galatians, right? In Christ, there's no longer male or female, uh, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but we are now one in Christ Jesus. So the difference then in the Christian ecclesia meant the gathering of all people under the lordship of Christ together. So then as it goes, right, you can see this word then became in different languages, our understanding of just what it means to be church. Iglesia is church in Spanish. The ecclesiastical, uh, ecclesial, ecclesiology, it's really just our understanding of our theology when it comes to organizing ourselves as a church. A lot of these big words, a way we organize for a purpose and mission. This word ecclesia in Greek shows up 111 times in the New Testament, referring to church the gathering of the believers, that assembly. Maybe the most um, obvious is in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the early church, y'all. This is Acts Literally in the same chapter where the, the Holy Spirit comes, Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit comes, and it's now up to the disciples then to witness in the power of the Holy Spirit, and more people are being added to this number. This is probably the earliest snapshot we have of how the church organized themselves in those very, very early days in the gathering of believers, the ecclesia. They worshiped, they prayed, they, they, they pulled their resources together and gave to any who had need. Some would look at this and say this was the earliest, most pure vision we had of what that gathering of Christians was and even could be still today. But of course, as it grew, as the church spread and into many different cities and to different regions, more were being added to the number. We see throughout the course of the New Testament, they are trying to figure out how to be church, how to order that ecclesia together for their mission and purpose, how to get a gathering of people together for a purpose. And so as they grow, we see them sort of wrestle with this. 
and come up with new terminology and ways to structure themselves for the mission. We see the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, which I've shared with you before, is basically when, um, you know, after Peter went to Cornelius' house and the Holy Spirit fell on some Gentiles, the leaders in Jerusalem said, hey, whoa, what's going on? What's going on here? And he said, look, this is just what happened. And so in Acts chapter 15, you see the Jerusalem Council, one of the earliest accounts we have of a gathering of lots of believers coming together to answer questions like, who are we? What do we believe? And how are we going to organize ourselves for mission? And they argued. <laughs> Let's see here. We have a great vision in Acts chapter 2 of what church can look like. And then 13 chapters later, we have the first major argument, the Council of Jerusalem. And they're arguing over whether or not they can share in the same ecclesia with the Gentiles if they can really break bread with them, if they can really eat with them, right? Because there was all kinds of laws in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament about people who were clean and not clean and, and who to associate with and who not to. So it was a big deal. And so what they did was they said, okay, that's fine. Paul, you keep going to the Jews, and, and Peter, you go to the Gentiles, and you, and you witness and we're going to go these separate ways, but still be together because this one thing, remember, just remember the poor. So there's this sense in which another layer of maybe this structure of how they were organizing themselves for the mission of the church, proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, and in your ministry and in your love, don't forget the poor. That we can agree to. And even then later in some of the pastoral epistles, like 1 Timothy, you see um, different, different instructions that church leaders were coming up with, maybe second, third generation church, about who could lead, who could have spiritual authority, and who, and, and who couldn't. All a part of this gathering, this ecclesia, for the purpose of the group. 1 Peter 2 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of, of him who called you out of darkness and into this marvel, marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Out of darkness into marvelous light. This is the identity of that gathering, of that assembly, to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's people. So this understanding of ecclesiology, of how we structure ourselves for the purpose and mission of the church, it must all be rooted on that identity. So really then for us as United Methodists, we believe our ecclesiology, if you will, is really a practical theology. It's a, it's a living out of what we believe about who we are, about who God is, and who we are going to be in mission a healthy polity then of this kind of government and structure, a healthy polity doesn't just serve the institution that it's a part of, but it serves the institution's mission. John Wesley says this, and I think I do have that if you go forward a few more. Here we go. Yep, not too far off. John Wesley says this, What is the end of ecclesiastical order? Is it not to bring souls from the power of Satan to God and to build them in his fear and love? Order, then, is so far valuable as it answers these ends 
And if it answers them not, it is nothing worth. Maybe in our terms today, we would say polity means nothing unless it serves the mission of the local church. Not just about serving some institution. Our structure, how we organize, who we are, it means nothing as a denomination unless it serves the mission of the local church. Because we believe the local church, that ecclesia here, this assembly of believers here in Louisville, Kentucky, is the main arena where the work of disciple-making happens, where we know each other, where we study scripture together, where we live life together, we hold one another accountable, we serve. This is the main arena where we experience the prevenient, justifying, sanctifying grace of God that makes us holy, that makes us part of that holy nation, people of God. It's right here. So anything, and I'm, I'm prefacing this because this is the big piece I want you to remember, because we're about to go into the deep end of what our denominational polity really looks like, and I want you to hear and know that at its best, it is meant to serve and resource the local church, the main arena for where disciple-making happens. This right here, at its best. This is from our, our book of discipline, Paragraph 201, it says this, The local church provides the most significant arena through which disciple-making occurs. It is a community of true believers under the lordship of Christ. It is the redemptive fellowship in which the word of God is preached by persons divinely called and the sacraments are duly administered according to God, Christ's own appointment. Under the discipline of the Holy Spirit, the church exists for the maintenance of worship, the edification of believers, edification of believers, and the redemption of the world. All right. Here you go, Mike. Oh, man, I haven't missed yet. Okay, this is good. Except that, but you helped. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the mission statement of the United Methodist Church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The way we live that out here at Revolution Church is, do you know? Yeah, re reveal something, Micah says. Joining Jesus in the revolution of transforming lives through teaching and serving. The revolution of transforming lives. That's what we're talking about, making disciples of Jesus Christ, transforming the world, right? Experiencing that grace. So we're joining God in that work because God's the first mover of transforming lives through teaching and service. That's what we do. This is the main arena where that happens. Okay, so I made, a, I made a, a cute graphic for you guys. Are you ready? So I want you to see the foundation of our polity and structure as United Methodist Church. A lot of you may not know this. I'll be honest. I didn't know it until I had to, <laughs> until I went to seminary and I took a class on our polity where I had to read our whole book of discipline. Do not ask me if I read. I did not read the whole book of discipline, but I know where to go and find everything that can be instructive to help us here at the local church. The local church is the foundation of this. And everything we're going to see above this now, at its best, is serving and resourcing and supporting the work of the local church here. So we, as a local church, also called a charge, we are members of the Kentucky Annual Conference. Yay! Okay, you ready? Oh, she's smarter than I am. <laughs> Here you go. Smart. Yeah, smarties. Smart choice. I played softball. Right? 
Uh, we are uh, above above the annual conference here. I'm sorry, above our local charge here would be a district. We are part of the Heartland District, which basically is like Crestwood, Louisville to E-Town. We've got about 65 churches that are part of the Heartland District. And we have a district superintendent who is my direct boss, if you will, sort of the, the direct supervisor. And he or she, John Hatton, he's come here a few times. John Hatton is our DS over. His name is John Wesley Hatton, yes. Reverend Dr. John Wesley Hatton. And you may say that and make fun of him anytime you want. It's great. Um, he is over the Heartland District of our annual conference. We have eight, nine, nine districts in the Kentucky Annual Conference. So that is our annual conference where their main role, their main role is to discover, develop, and send passionate spiritual leaders for leadership in the local church. So at our annual conference level, you have things like the Board of Ordained Ministries. You have the um, Office of Ministerial Excellence. You have a lot of, honestly, oversight and accountability for me your elder who has been appointed to this church, also support and resourcing. Yay, yay, two more. Support and resourcing for the mission of the local church here. Are you ready, Art? Just want you to be, oh, oh, mean. Here, Nancy. <laughs> Did you get your Smarties, Caroline? Almost. So you all, we at the annual conference level then, they are supporting, they are credentialing local leaders to then serve in our many churches in the Kentucky Annual Conference. We have a bishop and a cabinet of district superintendents who are over all nine of our districts who do the work of appointment making when it comes to resourcing and leading our local churches. So you know that I was appointed here three years ago by our bishop, um, for what do we say for an elder? It's the word, sacrament, order, and service to order the life of this church here as we live out our mission. That's what it's all about, our mission here as Revolution Church. Okay. Who, who was it? Over here? Mike, didn't you already? <laughs> oh, no. I'm... There you go, Mike. You've just been catching everybody else's, I feel like. Thank you. What's the difference between an elder and a deacon? They are... Oh. You guys just took such advantage of my nerd alert. Like, did you see how excited I got? <laughs> the definition's on your sheet. I'm not going to say it now. Oh, man. I'm so gullible. I'm such a Methodist dork, it's fine. They are both orders of ordained leadership in our church, elder and deacon. An elder is called to the work of, um, like, I, like I said, word, order, table, service. And so it's the elder who usually leads in a local church setting and is the, the main one qualified to sort of uh, administer the sacraments, as our Book of Discipline says. So serves at the table and communion and baptizes. Oh, man, this is good. And baptizes. A deacon then, this changed in 1996, the order of deacon. They are also ordained, um, but they feel called to specialized ministries of compassion and service and justice and still word and teaching. 
If you find a deacon in a local church, they're often doing ministries of discipleship um, or, or service and mission. We say that the deacon is the one that connects the church to the world. They have their eye on the needs of the world and the ministries of compassion and justice and service in the name of Christ. Uh, a deacon likely doesn't lead like a solo pastor on their own. They often lead an extension ministry beyond the local church. So they might run a nonprofit or they might be a hospital chaplain. We currently have a deacon who's the president of our Kentucky Methodist Children's Home. So her specialized ministry is then running our children's home. Um, which does tremendous ministry across our state. She's ordained as a deacon. So she would never lead a local church. She might come and preach. She might come and be on staff at a church, um, but always in sort of those specialized discipleship and, and service and justice. There, I entertained you. <laughs> so here's some of the, you might not know, the next level up is called jurisdiction or central conferences. There we go. Okay, I might just start passing the bowl like we're passing the plate. Here, Linda. Both Lindas. Here you go. Here you go, Linda. Okay. All right. Okay. Jackie. <laughs> Can I have an administer of the Smarties Bowl, please? <laughs> Thank you, Micah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I should have said coverall, right? Then we'd just all get it at the end. That would have been funny. Yeah, I didn't specify. So at the jurisdiction level, we are in the United States, we have five jurisdictions. If you'll go to the next slide, Meg. We have five jurisdictions. We are a part of the southeastern jurisdiction as a Kentucky Annual Conference. That's in yellow gold right there. Very similar to the southeastern conference of D1 College Sports. It's very similar. Bingo. <laughs> Bingo. Was that on there? <laughs> Charge. Charge Conference. There you go. So we are a part, uh, Kentucky, of the southeastern jurisdiction. All five of these jurisdictions, they meet every four years, and their main role is to elect bishops to serve in our church. And if a, if a bishop is elected within that jurisdiction, they will then serve an annual conference also in that jurisdiction. So our current bishop is Leonard Fairley. He was, elect, he was nominated and then elected out of the North Carolina Annual Conference, and he's been serving here for about six years. So all five of our jurisdictions met within the past two weeks. They've elected 13 new bishops to serve in our church starting January 1. It is also then the sort of the collection of bishops in any jurisdiction that then appoint. So the body of people, of delegates, of lay and clergy that come to these conferences, they're the ones who elect bishops, but it's the bishops themselves who appoint then to different annual conferences. Thank you. Typically four to eight years. So our jurisdictions meet every four years after the general conference meets, which I'll get to in a minute. <laughs> there you go. Uh, sorry, Micah. Thank you, Micah. Um, and just depending on their years left, uh, oftentimes it's before retirement. So you might have a bishop that serves only four years uh, as a full term before retirement, or then they'll serve a second uh, some will serve eight in one place and then move to another annual conference and serve for eight more. Um, it just matters sort of how much time they have left before retirement. Our bishop, uh, Leonard Fairley, he was, because of some retirements and the postponement of general conference, he was serving actually two annual conferences, Kentucky and North Carolina, for the past year and a half. Because we were able to elect three more bishops in our jurisdiction, 
he, uh, a different bishop has been appointed to lead in North Carolina, and he will remain here at least until May 24, July 24, when we'll meet again as jurisdiction um, and, and elect more bishops, July 20, 2024. A central conference would be a, a regional collection, a, a regional collection of churches and annual conferences that are outside of the United States. So if you go to the next slide, we have these central conferences, Africa Central, Congo Central, Germany Central, West Africa, Central and Southern Europe, Northern Europe and Eurasia, and Philippines. So that's seven. We have seven central conferences, which are basically jurisdictions that exist outside of the U.S., and they do the same work of electing bishops to serve in their regions as well. Okay, and then next, look, I got excited. You're like, yeah, let's go to that next page. That's fine. Um, the, the next level above that would be our, at our global denomination level. Uh, we understand that we have sort of three branches of government, and this is really sort of how they function. The general conference would be our legislative body, the Council of Bishops would be considered the executive, and the Judicial Council would be the judicial branch. They all, these are the checks and balances that exist within our system um, to have that sort of shared authority and shared leadership. It is the general conference that meets every four years to produce our book of discipline. They are the only body that can set official polity and policy in, in that way, the only body who can change anything within our book of discipline, and they're the only ones who officially speak for the denomination, that is the general conference. The Council of Bishops, the Council of Bishops uh, are seen sort of as our guiding spiritual leaders of the denomination. When you become a bishop, you are not, um, you are not ordained a bishop. They are all elders who have been ordained first at their annual conference level, but when they're elected bishops, they become part until death, <laughs> part of the council of bishops you're a bishop forever um, even though even if you're retired and not actively serving uh, they become part of that just group of spiritual leadership to lead and direct us the last number I heard was about 12 million United Methodists worldwide I feel like that's a little high I'll have to look that up I thought it was more like eight someone can google that later let me know and then the Judicial Council is sort of our highest body or, or court that's made up of laity and clergy elected by the General Conference. They normally meet twice a year uh, to consider different actions from, from different bodies if they adhere to our Constitution, basically, and, and are following the rules. That's, this is where it gets fun, guys. Uh, the next slide, uh, the General Conference also has these gen general boards and agencies, which is basically our global witness together. You think about our hospitals, there's going to be bingos. You think about our hospitals, you think about our universities, you think about our children's homes, you think about Cokesbury and the General Board of Discipleship that puts out resources for local churches. You think about UMCOR, United Methodist Committee on Relief, this global witness that we have for not just disaster relief, but for mission and rebuilding all over the world. Our missionaries, we have Methodist missionaries everywhere, almost. Um, that's, that would be part of this sort of global witness that we have of these specialized committees that help us beyond what any one church can do. We are part of this sort of global witness together. 
Um, and, and that's sort of the general conference that appoints people to serve on these general boards and agencies. That's really part of our, you might think of like the general board of higher education or on committee on relief of church and society, um, general board of discipleship, um, and different agencies that help us uh, kind of live out our mission beyond just the local church. The next slide is a weird small graphic that I found, but it kind of shows you how this is the connectional table, as it were. These seven bodies that I just showed in the uh, triangle in the pyramid uh, that kind of make up our global connection and our polity together. All, all good? Everybody good? <laughs> how you feeling? <laughs> Need some Smarties? Yeah, I'm sure that you have questions. This is a lot of information. But what I want you to hear is that all of it is, is meant to have this sort of connectional structure beyond the work that any one church can do on their own. We partner together in resource to transform the world together, right? That's our mission, making Disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. And at its best, all of this structure, if you go to the next one, all of this structure that we see is really meant to serve and support and resource the foundation of our church right here, you and me, in this local charge. Sometimes it feels a little top-heavy, right? Sometimes it feels like it's a little upside-down in this way. But at its best, our focus, our life together, our mission is lived out right here at this local church level. And so kind of to switch gears, the last thing about a few words just on sort of the present conversation in our church right now, some that you're aware of and some that you're not, before we do transition to a time of confession and Holy Communion together and receiving that grace, I just wanted to update you on a few things. The present conversation that faces our denomination as a church, and something that we've been talking about for probably about 45 years, as it's a discussion around marriage and ordination for members of the LGBTQIA community. And it's a question of theology, it's a question of scriptural interpretation, but it's also a question of polity. Those main questions of who we are, what we believe, and who can lead. The debate feels often about polity and kind of who receives that authority, but it's also these questions of theology of welcome and inclusion. And so, like I said, it's been a topic of discussion and debate for quite some time. It kind of came to a head at 2016 at our general conference level. That is the general church that meets every four years. Delegates are sent from each annual conference and jurisdiction to vote, to discuss, to holy conference. On the, United, on the direction of the United Methodist Church. And so it sort of came to a head in 2016. And there was a moment on the floor where people looked to the Council of Bishops, who again don't vote in the General Council, or the sorry, General Conference. They offer spiritual leadership and wisdom. And they said, we need help. We don't see a way forward here. It kind of felt like we'd come to an impasse in 2016. And so the bishops met, and they talked, and they put together a commission on the way forward. You might remember us talking about this back in 2019. 40-plus people from all over our global connection, from all different sort of theological convictions, different caucus groups, different areas, 
lay and clergy, they met for about a year and a half all over the world for listening, for learning together, for praying together, and for dreaming, is there a way forward for the United Methodist Church at this moment? And they came up with three plans of how we could move forward. They came up with a one church plan where people would kind of, it would take on a, a sort of a regional expression. We could be contextual uh, in our ministry. Because remember, we are a global church with people in Africa and Asia and uh, Europe, right? All in very different contexts trying to come together and make some of these decisions. So these people met, they came up with these three plans, the one church plan, the three branches plan, which basically split our one denomination into three. But maybe could we still hold on to some of the larger global missions like UMCOR that we all love? Is there a way that we could sort of remember the poor in our mission work together, like in Jerusalem? And then they also had a traditional plan, which maintained the current position of the United Methodist Church. Uh, that folks within that community were not permitted to be ordained or to be married within the United Methodist Church. So the traditional plan is what passed in 2019. That, that commission on the way forward, they, they said, we really recommend one church plan. There was a special called session of our general conference for only like the second time in our history. Uh, and the traditional plan passed with an exit strategy, paragraph 2553, that if you've heard the word now disaffiliation, that's where this word comes from. Paragraph 2553 basically said, if, you, if your convictions are to the point that you're, you feel that you need to leave the denomination, we want to do that in the most graceful way possible. And so they, they created this disaffiliation clause, which allowed churches to leave our connection, remaining, you know, taking their assets and their buildings with them, something that wasn't permitted before this clause. And then we were set to meet again in May of 2020 for our general conference, and we hoped finally have a resolution of our life together and, and how we could move forward. And as you know, that was postponed. It was postponed to 22, and then it was postponed again because of the global nature of this meeting and trying to meet. Uh, and so it is set for May 2024. So what I need you to know is that there are churches who are discerning right now disaffiliation and whether or not they can stay United Methodist. That disaffiliation clause that in sort of in its um, creation was meant for maybe some of our more progressive churches and clergy to, to provide them a, a graceful way out so that no more harm to them may be done. That's sort of changed in application and practice. And now it's many of our more traditional United Methodist brothers and sisters uh, who are choosing to disaffiliate, uh, and some of them to join a new denomination that has launched called the Global Methodist Church. They have a provisional book of discipline, provisional conferences. It's not yet sort of full-fledged and, and recognized as a denomination. But there are churches right now who are disaffiliating, and many of whom that are joining the Global Methodist Church. I want you to know that nothing in our book of discipline has changed. The general conference has not met since 2019 when the traditional plan was passed. And so many are leaving with the present issue on the table of human sexuality, um, but some for other issues and grievances that they might have at this time. A lot of it kind of to do with our polity and our structure and how we're set up. 
the Global Methodist Church does have a very similar structure, but they've made some key changes uh, in, in terms of how you make appointments, uh, in terms of wanting to have a little bit more strict accountability for anybody who does break that their book of discipline, um, and kind of a different role that the bishops might take on. And I want you to know this because our annual conference in Kentucky is meeting uh, December 4th, in fact, for a special called session of our annual conference, specifically for the reason to vote and approve for some churches to disaffiliate who have been in process. We're not sure how many, but it, we're expecting anywhere between 40 to 60 of our churches in Kentucky are choosing to disaffiliate at this time. We have a little over 800, I believe. Uh, and so right now, uh, 40 to 60 are discerning. There are more that might be in process that might come in June when we meet as an annual conference in June in Owensboro. This is for churches who have really been struggling, maybe for a long time, and wrestling with many are just disaffiliating to become independent and not seeking to join another denomination. So what does that mean for us as Revolution Church? It means that no decision is required of us at this moment. Again, nothing in our book of discipline has changed. The global church, the general conference, will meet again in May of 2024. We don't know what will happen then. There's been a lot of speculation, a lot of rumors, a lot of misinformation that's gone out about what could happen. The truth is we don't know. There could be decisions that we have to make as a church after that. But sort of as me, your, your spiritual guide through this, my, my wisdom is telling me that we'll prepare for a decision then if, if it's needed, if it's needed. And until then, we continue to be the revolution right here in Louisville, Kentucky, focusing our energy and efforts on making disciples of Jesus Christ right here. And I hope that in the course of the next year of some book studies and some different things I will offer, I will invite us in to a discernment process. So that if, if a decision does come in May of 2024, I, as your spiritual leader, have prepared you. I do not have a vote here. You as members do. This is, this is your church. And I simply will try to be an unbiased spiritual guide throughout this. And so friends, hear me. We are at our best when our polity and our government and our structure resources the local church right here. We are that in the revolution together. There is no denomination that is perfect because it is an institution built by humans who are fraught with sin, who are prone to division and hate and power grabs. That's a, that is a on all sides kind of statement. And so am I, I am hopeful for the future of this church because I know the work we do here and the disciples that we make here are transforming the world, and we are growing in grace here. And while the things that are before our church are important because it involves people, it is not the most important thing. And our still, our main focus and our main energy and our main efforts will be here in this local church, learning to love one another and our neighbors well and grow in grace of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So I want to leave on that hopeful note. I, I need to tell you what's going on. But I also need to know nothing is required of us at this moment other than to keep living out our mission 
of joining Jesus and the revolution of transforming lives through teaching and service. And what comes will come, and we'll weather that together. And when decisions need to be made, I hope that I've prepared us to do that. But be in prayer for this. This is a thing, but it's not the whole thing. Maybe that's a good summary. You could retweet that. <laughs> this is a thing, but it is not the whole thing. It is not the whole thing that's going on in the church. You and me right here together in this community, this is the main thing. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for who you are and for the ways in which you continue to meet us where we are with the grace that is needed for the moments that we face. Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on you. The prize. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, of the life that you invite us into. Help us to keep focused on the truth of, the, of these sort of biblical and theological truths that the real work of church happens in the ecclesia, in the gathering of believers who, who form for a purpose and for a mission. Help us not become so bogged down with some of what feels like uh, political divisions of our day that have even impacted our denomination, that we lose sight of the work that we have to do right in front of us of loving our neighbors as ourselves and inviting them to experience your grace at this table and in this community. So God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you surround us? Would you lead us, we pray? During uncertain times, but the truth is it's always uncertain of what tomorrow will bring. So give us the courage we need to meet the day and to love you with all that we have. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You know that we practice here an open table that Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him. No matter where you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what sins we feel like no you know feel like we've come into in the past week all who love Jesus are invited at this table this is an open table and we do not want to be a barrier to grace from to anyone to approach this table that is the Lord's table this is the real spiritual presence of Christ and the breaking of this bread and the sharing of this cup all that is necessary for salvation is found within the grace of Jesus Christ and so hear me say that all are welcome here. And we are glad that you are here to share at this table with this ecclesia in this moment at this time so that we may receive the grace we need to be released into the world to love God and love others. That is our mission and that will not change. And so Christ, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here on these gifts of bread and cup. Would you truly make them be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be redeemed and that we may be for the world, your hands and feet in an ever-hurting world. By your spirit, O oh God, would you make us one with you? Would you make us one with each other? And would you make us one in mission to the ends of the earth until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at your great heavenly banquet? We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.